Father, we thank you for the promise that your mercy is new with every single morning because we need it every single day. We thank you that you have given the fullness of mercy through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the mercy of salvation. We thank you for the mercy of withholding the judgment that we deserve. And Lord, as we see in your word today, we thank you for the mercy of wisdom when we don't know what to do. And Father, I just lift especially this morning the brother or sister who's in this room who is in the middle of a trial, who is in the fire, and who is confused and who is disoriented, who has questions, who has doubts. Lord, will you grant them today the wisdom for every moment, for every encounter, for every season, for every struggle. Help them to remember that they're not alone, that you are for them and not against them, that you are with us always to the end of the age. So Lord, Lord today, will you pour out to us wisdom from your word? Will you speak to our hearts this morning words that will both edify your church and bring glory to your name? You sanctify us in the truth of your word. Your word is truth. Speak it to our hearts now. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Um, so grateful for the worship team for, for leading us this morning and preparing our hearts as we come to the word. As you find your seats this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in uh, your Bible. James chapter one is where we will be together again today. If you're here with us today for the first time, my name's Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor and we're honored to have you worshiping with us this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take that with you as you go today. And a couple weeks ago, we started a message series in the short book of James um, that Lord willing is gonna carry us all the way through the fall. So today, we're picking right back up where we left off from the last couple of weeks, looking this morning at James chapter one, verses five through eight. One of my favorite books on prayer is by a guy named Paul Miller. It's called A Praying Life. And if you've not read this, I would, I would really encourage you to read A Praying Life. And throughout the book, um, Paul tells this really powerful and moving and beautiful story of, uh, of, of some challenges he and his wife have navigated in raising an autistic daughter who was unable to speak. And throughout the course of the book, he just shares all of these really moving stories about um, how they have learned about the heart of God in that relationship, and particularly how they've learned about the nature of prayer through that relationship, but also very honest about some of the struggles that they had to endure and walk through together as a family. And um, so he tells this story early on in the book about going on a camping trip with his other daughter, Ashley. And during the course of the camping trip, she lost a contact lens, and this was a very big deal to her, and she was really upset about it and was worried she was going to have to go the rest of this trip without a missing lens. And so as, as she's sharing her worry with her dad, he just suggests to her, hey, maybe we should pray about this. And in that moment, just in a very visceral way, she bursts into tears and she responds to him and says, what good does prayer do? I've been praying for Kim to be able to speak and she still can't speak. 
And, and so in that moment as a dad, man, his heart breaks because he, he didn't know that, he, that she had been praying for her sister and, and he didn't know that she had been wrestling with this. And, and deep down, he, he knew that this was true. Man, we have prayed for this and we haven't seen this happen the way that we want to see this happen. So in that moment, he's battling unbelief in his own heart because uh, he's saying to the Lord, like, Lord, if, if we pray for this contact lens to be found, it's not found. All it's gonna do is, is further drive forward her cynicism about prayer. And so he just prayed silent to himself. He said, Lord, this would be a really great time for you to break through. And just, just in his heart, as wrestling around, he said, this is a really sensitive time for Ashley. Just help her to see your goodness in this. And so uh, after he prayed that to himself, he prayed out loud, Lord, help us find this contact lens. And they just tells the story that they get down. I mean, just this ocean of leaves and twigs and sticks and grass on the forest floor, they found the contact lens. And, uh, and his conclusion to that story was that prayer made the difference after all. James 1, verse 5, that we're going to look at this morning, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And we read a verse like that, and it's like, man, it just sounds so easy, Right? The verse says, at face value, we can just ask God for wisdom in our moment of need, and he'll give us the wisdom that we need. But experience has taught us that maybe this won't be the case. Experience has taught us that we've maybe prayed really hard for lots of things, some very good things that we wanted to see happen that did not happen the way that we wanted them to happen. We prayed for the physical pain to go away, but it only got worse. We prayed for relief from the financial stress and another unexpected bill arrived. We prayed for the relationship to be reconciled and restored, but it still fell apart. We prayed, as I shared my own story last week, for the family member to live and they still passed away. We want to believe that we can just ask God for wisdom. We wanna believe that we can just ask him for clarity, but our experience has taught us he might not answer in the way we want him to. As we saw last week in verses two through four, followers of Jesus Christ are in no way exempt from the trials and challenges of this world. Not only are we not promised that, that we'll have comfort, we're promised we will walk through trials, we will walk through challenges. And what we saw last week is that we can face every trial with joy because we know that we don't face the trial alone. We're facing the trial with Jesus. And, and so sometimes we, we know, man, God may not answer this in the way that, that I want him to. And those are the moments, as we saw last week, that we learn to trust in God's sovereignty. We're learning to trust in his plan. And we're learning to trust that his way is better than our way, even if we can't see it or understand it or feel it in the moment. But church, what we're going to see this morning in verses 5 through 8 is that there are some things. There are some things that God wants us to ask for and that he is eager to give us when we ask. What James shows us in verses five through eight today is that we will give, be given wisdom from God for every trial that we face when we ask God for wisdom and faith. God will give us wisdom for every trial that we face when we ask for wisdom and faith. While the Lord never promises things like perfect physical health or undisturbed safety or material prosperity in this world, he does promise that when we face these things, he will face them with us and he will give us wisdom for the moment. So James chapter one, I'm gonna read beginning with verse five. James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. Everyone say all. 
That's you and me. He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. What James shows us in verse five this morning first is that in times of trial, we can ask God for wisdom without fear. We can ask God for wisdom without fear. I mentioned this briefly last week. Sometimes the book of James is criticized by, by critical biblical scholars as not having any sort of set pattern to it. It feels like he kind of jumps from topic to topic and at face value, that, that seems true. You know, last week we're looking at trials and challenges and this week we're talking about wisdom. But if you look closely between last week and this week, you'll see there is a connection between verse four and verse five. We saw last week that in our, our trials and our, and our struggles, God's sovereign purpose in these things is that he is producing endurance that will continue to grow until the day that we stand before Jesus and see him face to face, where James says we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in verse five, James writes, so if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God's desire, his, his design in all of our struggles is that one day we will be lacking in nothing, which means he desires for us when we lack something in the struggle to have what it is that we lack. And so if we lack wisdom, James says, we can ask of God. If you look at this uh, really in the, the original language, this was originally written in a third person imperative that would have come across with an intensity that sounded a lot more like, if you lack wisdom, you must ask God. And when you think of that statement in those terms, what this shows us, it speaks to both our desperate need for wisdom and it points to God as the divine source of that wisdom. When we face trials, when we face struggles, when we're being tested, we need divine perspective. We need godly wisdom. We need holy guidance for whatever it is we're walking through in the moment. And James shows us in verse five, two reasons why we can come to God and ask without fear. He shows us in verse five, first, that God gives wisdom generously. God gives wisdom generously. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. And some, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, a lot of English translations also translate this word generously as liberally. And that, that would be an appropriate translation as well. What we're getting across here is that God doesn't have a shortage of wisdom. God's not worried about overspending and causing inflation with his dispensation of wisdom. Like he's eager to grant wisdom. He's eager to pour out wisdom without restraints on all who need it in their moments of need. Uh, many of you uh, know my, my grandfather passed away earlier this year. He was 92 years old, um, godliest man that, that I ever knew, faithfully followed Jesus his, his whole life, served in ministry for over 70 years. And the thing I remember most about my grandfather is that he was extremely generous. That the man was just a giver. He had grown up, I mean, just a different generation, right? He grew up a depression era, having absolutely nothing. And so as the Lord started to bless him materially, he always wanted to share it with those who were around. And one of the things my grandfather, when I was a kid, loved to be generous toward me with was his gum. I loved to chew gum when I was a kid. Like everywhere I went, I was, I was smacking a piece of gum, typical kid style. You know, you go through the whole pack in like 30 minutes, right? Um, and, and, and so anytime I went to my grandparents' house, I knew that I could hit my grandfather up for some gum because you learn pretty quickly as one of the grandkids, if you go to Papa asking for a piece of gum, he's probably not just gonna give you a piece of gum, he's gonna give you the whole pack. And so anytime we got to their house, you know, I'd run in the door, I'd give him a hug and he'd get down his knee and he'd whisper on my ear, he'd go, hey, go look in that closet over there. And you'd go in and it would be like the 10 packs of gum. 
And I'd say, how much can I have? And he'd say, you, you can have it all. Which, you know, drove my mom crazy at the time. But grandparents, my goodness, you guys are such hypocrites because when you had kids, when you had kids, you're like, no, they don't need that. And now you're grandparents and you're like, no, they definitely need that. They need, they need all of it. He just, he gave it generously that there was no restraint whatsoever in his giving. And so the picture we have here is, man, when we come to the Lord asking for wisdom, he doesn't give it like a, a parent. He gives it like a grandparent. He doesn't just want to give you a, a piece of wisdom. He, he wants to give you the 10 pack. He's ready to pour out his wisdom on you. One of the great examples of this in scripture comes in 1 Kings chapter three. King David, who is the most prolific king in, in all of Israel's history, has passed away and his young son Solomon has now been anointed as king. And the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream and he says to him, ask me what you wish. He said, ask me for anything. I want, I want you to think about this for just a second. Like, like this is about as close to like an, an Aladdin's genie type situation as you could get, right? Except it's with God. He's not a genie. And he comes to you in a dream and he, and he just said to you, what do you want? Anything you want, I'll give it to you. And of all the things Solomon could have asked the Lord for, what did he ask him for? He asked him for wisdom. And 1 Kings 3 says that it pleased the Lord when he made this request. The Lord says to Solomon, he's like, you could have asked me for long life. You could have asked me for riches. You could have asked me for dominance over your enemies. He said, but because you have asked me for wisdom, he says, buddy, I'm gonna give you a mind like this world has never seen. And that's exactly what happens. 1 Kings 4, the very next chapter tells us that people would literally come from the ends of the earth to sit in Solomon's presence and listen to his wisdom. You can ask God for wisdom without fear because God gives wisdom generously. But he doesn't just give wisdom generously. He, James goes on to say in verse five that God also gives wisdom graciously. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. To give wisdom without reproach means that God gives wisdom without finding fault. He gives wisdom to you without rebuke. He gives wisdom to you without demeaning you. And I think this is so important for us to see. I just had this conversation literally with someone in this room just a few days ago. What we do sometimes, we're sometimes afraid to come to God asking for something because our request in our mind just feels insignificant and foolish. And this is sometimes the sentiment, right? Like there's so much that's happening in this world. So many cruel things happening, so much evil that's being poured out everywhere. Whenever we come to God asking for help with, with our money or with our relationships or with whatever it is we're walking through with our physical health, it just seems so insignificant compared to these things. That was the conversation I had. The person was just saying like, I just feel dumb asking God for this. As if when we bring our request to God, he's gonna look at us and say, are you seriously bothering me with this right now? Like I got famine going on over here and I got war going on over here and I've got economic instability going on over here and I got dictators and I got two billion people that haven't heard the gospel yet and you're bringing this to my table? And James says, God's not like that. He gives wisdom generously and he gives it without reproach. That the promise here from James 1 is that when you come to the Lord asking for wisdom, he is not going to meet you with a scolding rebuke. He's going to meet you with the tenderness and the compassion of a father who loves you and wants the best for you. 
This is one of those great places. I mentioned this very briefly last week. This is one of those great places where uh, the book of James overlaps with the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to just turn with me in your Bible for just a second, Matthew chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. Many of you were here with us last year when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount, and this is towards the end of uh, the greatest sermon of all time. This is the goat sermon, absolutely, because Jesus preached it. And, and this is towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, where Jesus talks about the simplicity of asking, and, and he contextualizes it in the relationship that a child has with a father. Matthew 7, Jesus writes, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And here's the relationship. Here's how he illustrates this. He says, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who were evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's the picture that Jesus is painting here in our asking. It's not coming to the Lord when we ask him for a good thing, expecting that he'll give us a bad thing. We can come to him expecting that he desires for us to have the right things when we ask for them according to his word. Um, my favorite barbecue spot on the planet is a, is a place called Dreamland Barbecue in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And if you've never eaten there before, you have in fact not yet eaten barbecue. And um, it's whatever you like is not as good as that, I promise you. And so I um, had a friend who was in the Tuscaloosa area a few weeks ago went to Dreamland and he brought home to me um, a big canister of their famous sauce and of some seasoning. And so for the last couple of weeks, um, our family, we typically make chicken once a week. I have been making Dreamland barbecue chicken. And my middle son, Nolan, just loves barbecue chicken. That's his favorite meal almost every single week. And so, man, we just devoured our plates the other day. There was one more piece of chicken in the pan. And internally, I was already like, that is definitely mine. Like when Soon as I'm done here, I'm cleaning out and I'm, I'm gonna finish the job up there. But it, uh, Nolan actually finished his plate first and he hops up from the table. He goes, I'm getting the last piece of chicken. And in my heart, I'm like, no, like you're, that belongs to me. Like that this is, I, I'm, I'm being merciful just even sharing this sauce with you, right? Like this is, this definitely belongs to me. But you know, Nolan's my middle child. I was a middle child. I've got kind of a soft spot for him. So at the end of the day, he, he ate the chicken. And, and so this is a picture of Jesus painting. Like, man, even in my selfishness there, like my desire, like, no, I want that for, for me and I wanna withhold that for you. Even in my selfishness, like I don't, I don't go to Nolan and, and say, hey buddy, how about instead of chicken, I give you a rattlesnake, you know? Like, I don't do these things. Jesus says, look, you're sinful people. And even in your sin, you know how to give good gifts. So how much more does your father, who is sinless, who loves you, delight to give you good gifts. And when we studied these words last year, we saw from Matthew chapter seven that our God delights to give us what we ask for when we ask for the right things in faith, in his name, according to his will and according to the promises of his word. And James 1.5 shows us that wisdom is one of those right things. It's one of those things that our God is eager to grant and to give. But there is a little bit of a caveat here that we have to make sure we pay attention to. From James 1, let's read together verse 6. Here's that pesky word, but. 
So here comes a condition, right? But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So in times of trial, yes, we can ask God for wisdom without fear, but there's a little bit of a caveat here. Second, James shows us when we ask for wisdom, we have to ask God for wisdom with all faith. Let's not miss this. Coming to God and asking for wisdom without fear assumes that we are coming to God and we're asking for wisdom and faith. To ask God for wisdom while simultaneously doubting that he'll actually give us the wisdom is to effectively tell God, I know that you can do this, but in my heart, I don't think that you will. And and that's what James is warning against here. You know, I I think this is particularly relevant for the culture we're living in today because one of the greatest hindrances to the development of childlike faith in the 21st century is just the prevailing presence of cynicism in our culture. Man, we treat culturally cynicism like it's some sort of godly virtue. Like it's like we we can be an expert in, in just knowing what is wrong about everything. And, 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 you know, we're the type of person, C.S. Lewis warns against this, the type of person who, who's always seeing through things. Like we can never take something at face value. It's the person who's always going, yeah, I know you said that, but I know you really meant this. I see you doing this, but I know your motive for, for doing this. I, I see what's happening with this group, with this organization, but, but I know what it's like behind the scenes. It's the person who always claims to have kind of this elite understanding of everything that's going on. And it's one of the most poisonous, toxic things to your faith. It's it's the inability to take God at his word. Don't miss this this morning. Cynicism is doubt. Cynicism is doubt that is masquerading as discernment. And this is what's so insidious about it. It presents itself as wisdom and as maturity and as discerning, but particularly like in the online world today, there is so, there's so much that's happening in the name of Christian discernment that is nothing more than faithless, godless cynicism. Continual rebuking of, of the church and of its failures and, 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 and of the promises of God and just this, the person who claims to see it all, who always knows what's going on behind the curtain That's exactly what James is speaking to here. And that's an important distinction to make because again, I know it's easy to read verses like this and get really discouraged quickly, right? Because what, what, who among us as followers of Jesus at some point in time has not struggled with doubt in some capacity? We've all had doubts. We've all had questions. We've all had things that we've had to work through and to wrestle and and to struggle with. And so uh, to an extent, that's gonna be an inevitable part of uh, being a follower of Jesus Christ. But understand, while God is eager to meet us in our doubt, he doesn't wanna leave us in our doubts. And and I I just wanna encourage you, if you are the person today that, man, you really want to be able to believe this promise, but you're struggling, uh, listen to this story from Mark chapter nine. Uh, Nate Schaub referenced this when he was praying earlier. Mark 9, there's just, I love this story. I think it's my favorite prayer in the whole Bible. Mark 9, a man brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And how does Jesus respond in Mark 9, 23? Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And listen to this prayer. This is a bold prayer, verse 24. 
immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Every single one of us at some point in time is going to struggle with doubt. We're going to wrestle with doubt. And in that moment of struggle, we can trust and be confident the Lord will meet us in that place, but he doesn't meet us there to leave us there. He wants to pull us out of the subjectivity and the questions and land us on the objectivity of the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and of the promises of his word. Church, cynicism is not a spiritual gift. It, it, it is disguised as discernment. We have to wage war against its presence in our life because James has a couple of warnings for the person who lives in cynicism, who is constantly pessimistic that God will keep his word. Two warnings. First one's in verse six. He warns us that asking in doubt may leave us empty-handed. It might leave us empty-handed. The person who asks in doubt instead of faith, he says, must not suppose they'll receive anything from the Lord. Every one of us will struggle with doubt, but what we have to do is invite the Lord into those doubts, invite the Lord into that struggle with belief. And man, this is a bold prayer, just to be able to confess to the Lord, I know that you're there, I believe that you're there, I'm trusting in the promise that you're there, but I'm struggling to see it right now. I'm struggling to feel it right now. And so, so it's just that tension of, yes, Lord, I believe, but I'm just honestly confessing to you, I've got some unbelief eradicate the unbelief, eradicate my pessimism, eradicate my cynicism, anchor me to the hope of the promise of who you are and what you've said you will do in your word. That that's what he's calling us to do. If we cannot come to the Lord asking in faith that he really will do what he said that he will do, James says we really shouldn't expect to receive anything from him. So we have to battle against this pessimism and this cynicism by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus meets us in our doubt, but he meets us in the quicksand of doubt to put our feet on the solid rock of his son Jesus and the promises of his word. Second warning James gives in verse eight is that asking in doubt shows that we're double-minded. And this speaks a lot more, this this language double-minded, it speaks a lot more to the type of doubt that James is addressing in this text. The one who asks in doubt without faith, he says, is a a double-minded person. What's behind that language of being double-minded? Think of somebody who is two-faced. Somebody who has split allegiances or loyalties. It's, It's someone who has multiple personalities. There's a Christian persona that says it trusts God and says it believes in God, but then there's essentially a functional atheism that lives and acts as if God does not exist. This this is a key distinction about the type of doubt that James is addressing. The specific type of person James is referring to here is the person who claims to believe in God, but whose actions and whose functions reveal that they don't believe he truly exists. It's a person whose allegiance is divided between the wisdom of God's word on one side and then the wisdom of the world on the other side. When I was in uh, seventh grade, I went to, um, with my student ministry that I was in, um, we went to a retreat at Awanata Valley. This is um, up in the upstate area, Marietta, north of Greenville, just south of the North Carolina state line. And we went in the winter, so it was still really cold. Um, and it was in the 30s and 40s, I think, most of the days that we were there. And so there was a big lake and there was a zip line and water activities, but nobody's really doing that stuff because it was too cold. But they did tell us, hey, if you want to take out one of the canoes, you can do that. And so me and my buddy Tim decided we wanted to have a canoe race. 
And so we raced from the bunks where we were staying and we ran out towards where the lake was. And Tim was a little bit faster than me. He was an old, older than me. And so he runs out on the dock. He jumps out on a canoe and he starts making his way out. Well, I'm very eager to catch up with Tim. And as he's pushing his canoe away, my canoe started to rock a little bit. And as I'm stepping off the dock, I see the canoe rocking, but I kind of just hesitated at the last second. And instead of stepping in, I waited and then the canoe kept drifting away and then I just fell in the water. I mean, it jeans in a hoodie, you know, 30, 40 degree temperatures outside, just frigid water. So I gotta, you know, come up gasping for air. I pull myself out real quick. I'm running back to, to where we were, ruined my whole weekend, right? Because now my favorite hoodie is soaking wet and I can't wear it. And it was just a mess. And, and, and this is the picture that James is showing for us here, that the person who has one foot in the stability of God and the person who has another foot in the instability of the world, that's an unstable person. That's a double-minded person. It's a person who's gonna end up in the water because we're trying to kind of have the best of both worlds. We've got these divided allegiances. We've got these divided loyalties. And the warning from James is not only should we not expect to receive anything, it reveals something about the nature of who we are. We are functional atheists in these moments. But we say, God, I need you. I need your wisdom. I need your guidance. I need your direction. But all of our actions say, I don't really trust you. We pray for God's help, but then we trust our feelings. We trust our emotions. We trust our experiences. We trust our personal opinions. Modern believers, man, we have just as, as much of a tendency as the secular world to self-medicate on, on the medication of self-help. It's not that we can't learn things from this, but when we, we quickly run to the wisdom of the world, we can quickly find ourselves in the water when that wisdom doesn't check against God's word. And if you, you spend any time in our church, you'll know like we're, we're not against things like, like counseling and therapy. We think those can be very, very helpful tools in helping you grow and helping you work through things and process things. But, but it really concerns me pastorally how many believers we're seeing in our culture today who will quickly substitute the wisdom of God's world for the wisdom of secular psychology and philosophy and sociology, how quickly we will accept things without ever one time asking the question, does this actually check out against God's word? And church, in those moments, we, we do not make the word of God subservient to the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man is subservient to the word of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, it doesn't say go ask your pastor. It doesn't say go ask your best friend. It doesn't say go ask your psychologist, go ask your therapist. No, if any of you lacks wisdom, it's not that you can't learn things from these other people, let him ask God. And he'll give us the wisdom that we need for the moment that we're in. I think it's really, really easy for us sometimes as followers of Jesus, when we, we come to questions of worldview. When we talk about worldview, what we're talking about questions related to origin, meaning, morality, and, and destiny. What a worldview is developed around answering the questions, you know, where do we come from, and what is the meaning and the purpose of life, and from where do we get our standard of right and wrong and true and false, and where's all this going when we die? And I think sometimes it's easy for us as followers of Jesus to really just kind of write off atheists and say, how can you ask those questions and come to the conclusion that there is no God that's behind all of this? But I want us to pause on that criticism for a second and think about this. Which, which is actually crazier? Not seeking wisdom from a God that you don't believe is there or claiming that you believe in an all-powerful, omnipresent, all-knowing God, but living your life as if he doesn't exist. Which is crazier? 
not praying to the God that you don't believe is there or saying you believe that God is there, but functioning as if you can do all this without him. You run to your own wisdom, you run to your friend's wisdom, you run to the world's wisdom instead of submitting all of it to the word of God and trusting that he'll give us what we need. Tim Keller, another really good book on prayer that I would encourage you to read, uh, his book on prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. He writes, to fail to pray is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. An atheist doesn't ask God for anything because he doesn't believe that God is there. And yet, how many of us claim to believe that God is there, and yet we never ask him for the things that he has promised to give? We functionally treat him as if he's not right. We've got one foot in the stability of the world, of the, of the word. We've got another foot in the instability of the world. And we're in the water. And that's why. And so church, I, I know that as we, we wrap this up this morning, that this, that this can hit a lot of us in, in some very different ways. Because again, I, I know, like you, man, I, I've, I've had plenty of moments of doubt. Moments of struggle, moments where I'm, I'm asking questions. I, Lord, I don't see this. I don't feel this. I don't understand this. I don't know what to do in this moment. And, and listen, like we absolutely, when, when, when we lack wisdom, we can receive wisdom from a, from a pastor or from a counselor. We can receive wisdom from other resources. We can receive wisdom from counsel and from seminars and from training. We, we can absolutely receive wisdom from, from, from others who are walking with the Lord. But man, let's not forsake the step when we don't know what to do. Ask God. Ask the one who is the source of, of all wisdom. And, and listen, we can be confident that God will give us wisdom for our trial because God has already given us the fullness of wisdom in our greatest trial. Don't miss this this morning. When we need wisdom, God has not just given us a series of principles in his word. When we needed wisdom, God gave us the person of his son. First Corinthians chapter one, the apostle Paul says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. God does not just give wisdom because we needed principles to live by. God gave us wisdom because our sins needed dying for and in our moment of greatest trial, when we faced our sin, when we faced the insurmountable obstacle for our sin, in our moment of greatest need, God gave us the fullness of wisdom in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So you can have faith that if God has given you Jesus in your trial of sin, he's going to give you the wisdom that you need in whatever trial you face today. So you bow your head with me as we close our time this morning. I wanna make this really simple for us before we take communion together this morning. Do you lack wisdom today? Do you lack wisdom today? Wisdom to do, about what to do with a relationship, wisdom about what to do with your physical health, wisdom over what to do with a financial situation. You can absolutely receive counsel and input from others, but don't skip the most important step. Ask God. And, and if you're in that place today where you're going, Taylor, like, I, I want to, but if I'm just being honest, I've got a lot of doubts. I've asked him for some stuff before, and it's not happened the way that, that I wanted. And it's making you hesitant to ask for the things he says he wants you to have. Listen, invite the Lord into that struggle today. You can boldly pray to him, Lord, I believe. I know you're there. 
know that you see me, but I've got some unbelief too. So help my unbelief. He will meet you in that. He will meet you in your doubt. He will meet you in your struggle. He will meet you in your unbelief, but he does not want you to stay there. He does not just want to bear, you to bury yourself in your pessimism and your cynicism. He wants to set your feet on the solid rock of his son, Jesus Christ, not just on the principles of wisdom, but on the person of wisdom. So you take a moment and do that this morning. If you lack wisdom, tell the Lord you lack wisdom. And if you lack belief, tell the Lord that you lack belief. And trust that wherever you are, he'll meet you where you are and take you where you need to be.